You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Great. If you have a Bible, I'd love it if you could turn to uh, Daniel chapter 3. Two weeks ago, we did our family service where we introduced Daniel and then Rich spoke so eloquently last week from Daniel chapter 2. Just while you're finding it, I'm going to quote this guy, John Lennox. I've used his book lots in preparing for this. He's an Irish mathematician, professor, and apologist. He says this, The story of Daniel and his friends is a clarion call to our generation to be courageous, not to lose our nerve and allow the expression of our faith to be diluted and squeezed out of the public space and thus rendered spineless and ineffective. Their story will also tell us that this objective is not likely to be achieved without cost. And so what he's saying is if you look at the book of Daniel in chapter 2, God revealed wisdom. And and that uh, was a statue that was there uh, interpreted for the king. And in this one, God does something which is individual and national. I'm not going to talk too much about it. I'm going to read the whole chapter. So I know this could take just a few moments, but we believe the Bible is the word of God. And so to be totally honest, let's just give some time and God will speak to us through this. Father, as we read this chapter, would you speak into us? Lord, some of us would have read this many times. Some of us never have heard of it. But we do come right now and say, speak. We believe this is the living word of God. We believe it's dynamite. Let's come with faith. Amen. Amen. I was just reminded actually of a story. Uh, This is totally true. Uh, Nikki and I were doing up a house, and uh, we found a Second World War bomb in the coal hole at the back of the house. It was a live one. Uh, I phoned, told the police about it. They sent a sergeant round. They ended up calling the Westminster Bomb Squad out thing was, I had carried this bomb and put it down the garden and, and just left it in a sack. And when the police turned up, they wouldn't pick it up. That's when they were calling out the Westminster Bomb Squad and sort of saying, oh, you know, and, and it's funny because they gingerly open this sack and take out this bomb to see, is it about to go off? And they said to me, it is live. Now, actually, it was just a smoke incendiary device and they took it away. <laughs> Actually, sometimes I think we forget this when we come to the Word of God. Honestly, feel this is life. And we want to take it out this morning and say, Phew. not that it's going to blow up in our face, but actually I think there's some energy and excitement. So I'm going to read this chapter to us. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officers to come to the dedication of the image he had made. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officers assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, 
This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold the king, that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing This is the third time we've been told this. But there are some Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. It could well have been envy. These people have been successful. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you've set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I've made very good. It's almost like your last chance saloon. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. I I love this reply. If you've not picked up the tension of the story yet, pick it up here. O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into this blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude toward them changed. It's almost like no more grace for you. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter. They reckon these furnaces had these big billows where they blow air in and make it as hot as possible. He commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men 
wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent that the furnace, so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped up in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. I've often thought, I wonder what was going through their mind. If it was me, I thought, no, this is a party trick, I'm staying. (laughs) No, they probably came out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and the royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell on them. The only thing that had been destroyed was what man had tied them up with, is basically what's there. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I decree the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the province of Babylon. I love this story. I don't know if you've heard it before or whether it's the first time of reading that through. But I just think this is an incredible story. We think, well, we know it happened about 2,600 years ago. We know some things about King Nebuchadnezzar. He's the first guy that I want us to be looking at. Basically, King Nebuchadnezzar's father had established this empire. And King Nebuchadnezzar, in fact, his name uh, means the one who keeps succession. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to rub too many things in because the Premier League's not even started. But Alex Ferguson was a great manager of Man United. They struggled to get someone to follow on. Succession is a really hard thing to do. King Nebuchadnezzar went further than his father. In fact, he extended the kingdom. We could be looking at all that, but I haven't got time. The first verse in the book actually tells you, doesn't it, that he took over Jerusalem because God had given the city into Nebuchadnezzar's hand. It would be Iran and Syria that he would be ruling modern day. It was incredible. He was taking this on. 
But what does this story tell us about this king? It tells us that he established this image. What do we know about the image, this idol that he made? It was there to intimidate. We don't actually know what the image was. Some people think it was Nebuchadnezzar himself. But if you think about it, it was 90 feet tall. Okay, you're modern. 27 meters tall. That is fairly tall. And it was only 2.7 meters wide. I mean, it's almost like this sort of pencil shape. It's funny, I was trying to work out pictures of it this week, and of course we don't know what it looked like. Some think it was literally a plinth, and his image was on the top of it. Others think actually it was a, a picture of his God, and that you were bowing before his God. We're not totally sure, but we know it would have intimidated you. We have buildings now like the Shard in London, and you stand at London Bridge and you think, wow, it would have felt like that for them. They weren't used to such... I mean, how it didn't topple over, many commentators don't understand. They would have turned up. There would have been no internet. This would have been like, whoa. This guy was an incredible king. He built this to intimidate you. He built this image, this idol, to impress you. Now, it tells us it's made of gold. Now, partly that would have shone and everybody would have seen it. Some people say it couldn't have been made of gold. That would have been too much gold. They think it was gold-plated. But actually, you've got to remember that he'd just taken 100,000 talents of gold from Jerusalem. So whether it was pure gold or whether it was gold leaf, what we know is it would have been very impressive. It was bling on a mega scale. I mean, you'd have looked at that and thought, whoa, look at this. It was there to move you. You see... Every time we get this thing, the instruments are being played. Why? Because the instruments would have set the atmosphere. Uh, you try watching a film on silent, apart from not understanding the plot, you just lose any sense of the sort of tension of it. Whereas when suddenly the music starts coming in, and sometimes if somebody's watching a film and you come in halfway through, you think something bad's going to happen because you can hear the music building. I don't know the story, but I know the music is drawing me in. But that's what would have happened here. The king didn't have this image and, and total silence. He had the music going. I wonder what it would have been like. But suddenly, this, I want you to be moved. It was to impact you. The guest list that he had was incredible. We keep reading, don't we? All the high and the mighty of society were there. The shapers would have been there. A little bit shocking, if I'm totally honest. There was no impartial judiciary in those days. The judges and the magistrates bowed as well. Because what he wanted you to do, he said, I want you to realize, actually, this idol is impressive. What else do we learn about this idol that he made? His reasons behind it. It was to connect you to other people. Several times it tells us that all the nations came to bow. In fact, he got them all to bow. Pre the Second World War, the Germans were doing a very similar thing. They were trying to use religion and philosophy to gather people together to follow an ideology. And so what you suddenly get here in this idol, there's almost what we would now call crowd influence. Why are we doing this? Well, everybody's doing it, and you get swept along with the crowd. 
No, I don't show it in my age, but actually I, um, I went up to New Year's Eve on 1990 in Trafalgar Square. This was before a lot of health and safety. The only health and safety there was is the police used to frisk everybody that you couldn't take any glass bottles into Trafalgar Square. And so anybody that had brought some alcohol to drink drank it all very quickly and then went into Trafalgar Square. So actually, it was a fairly merry bunch, if I was totally honest, and there was thousands there. At one stage, you, you were just rammed into a crowd like this. You could be stood here. The next moment, no word of a lie, I could be right over the other side of the room, and I'd not even walked. I mean, the crowd just took you wherever you went, you know what I'm saying? And then suddenly, you know, they're all cheering like this. In those days, they had like one TV on Nelson's column, and we'd all, you know, and suddenly the crowd went like, and wherever the crowd, and you were just carried by the crowd. But that is what he wanted you to have, this impact here. It's like, this is my idol. The crowd will carry you here. The crowd is going to encourage you to come and to bow. This was a cultural thing that he was developing. The many in his nation were polytheists. That means they had many gods. And he said, look, I want you to add this one. I want you to come and bow here. Oh, I... I, I I've spent too long on this already. I just found it fascinating, his commitment to building this idol. Why was it gold? Well, if you were here last week, you know that there was a dream of the head of gold, and that was him. You also realized that the dream was that there was a statue, wasn't there? That it was clay and iron feet, and that was the weakness. I guess you could say that he wanted to bring strong and stable leadership. I'm not quite sure it worked. We know that this was set up by the king. It tells us in verse 1, in verse 2, in verse 3, in verse 5, in verse 12, in verse 14, in verse 18, the king had set this idol up. The king is coming to say, look, I want you to gather to this. So what's the significance? Why am I dwelling on it so long? I believe this reflects the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 11, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, they do a very similar thing. You can read about it, Genesis 11, verse 2 to 4. As people moved eastward, they found a plain and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. They said, come, let us build a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so we may make a name for ourselves. Just like this image, it was built on a plain. Just like this image, they gathered the nations. Just like this image, they wanted to make a name for themselves. In fact, when people wouldn't obey, what did Nebuchadnezzar, he had a Freudian slip, we'd say. He didn't say, no one can save you from my God. He said, no one can save you from me. Because actually the image was about him. You see, idolatry at its heart is at the worshipper's disposal. Idolatry is actually to achieve the end of the one who establishes the idol. I believe that is true idolatry. So he'd set this idol up that you will worship me. Okay, so let's look at the other side of the picture. That's idol worship. The other side of the picture is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were three friends of Daniel. Where is Daniel? 
I don't know if it's you. I mean, I've read this book before and I think, how does he get away with it? Well, I thought I'd read this week to try and find some answers for you. And somebody said he was away on business. Somebody else said he was working indoors. Somebody else said they think he was ill on the day this happened. Somebody else says he was not required to make a public display because actually he was almost like the Prime Minister. And somebody else says he was too important to be challenged. Do you know what the real answer is? We don't know. And we're asking questions the Bible doesn't answer. So I can't tell you why Daniel wasn't there. What I do know is these three men were there and I know these three men had a choice to make. Very simple choice. On the one side, they've got their position. They're respected. They're overseers. On the one side, they've got their family. We assume they probably were married people with children. On the one side, they had their wealth. They were employed by the king. On the one side, they had security. Although they were exiles, they'd been trained up by the king and they had a career and prospects. On the one side, they had life. They were breathing. What did they have on the other side? What was the choice between? It was between all of that and God. What are they going to choose? Are they going to choose position, family, wealth, security, life? Or will they choose God? John Lennox I tell you, I quoted him at the beginning. I don't think this quote's coming up. It says, God is the great deliverer, but he will not deliver us from having to make our own decisions. You see, they would rather take the consequences than compromise. That's the challenge of these three. We know that they were not saved from the fire. They were saved in the fire. Joyce Baldwin, she, was, uh, she wrote a commentary that I read. They do not doubt the power of God to deliver them, but they have no right to presume he will do so. That is the amazing faith that these three do. They are prepared to sacrifice everything. I find this truly humbling. I, I, I remember somebody preached on this years ago, and it's one of those things that stuck with me. God can, God will, but even if he doesn't, we'll only worship him. I mean, what faith. What a huge challenge. Now, I, I, I'd much rather quote Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet who says, when, the waters, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. But that's not always the case for these guys. You see, ultimately, the three friends love God more than they love life itself. And I find that provocative and challenging. You see, being a Christian doesn't ultimately mean we're going to be safe. We can take that from this story. In this, this our very country, Latimer, Bishop Latimer, he was chaplain to the King of England. Unfortunately, in the Tudor times, we were swinging between being a Protestant country and being a Catholic country. And uh, he'd been back in a Protestant king, and then a Catholic queen came on the throne. And basically, they went through a trial, 
and they ended up burning him at the stake. He said this, there was two of them being burnt at the same time, Latimer and Ridley. Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. For we shall this day light such a candle in England as I trust by God's grace shall never be put out. Now, that was 500 years ago in this country. And we suddenly think, God, that seems a long time ago. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, how relevant is that to us today? Well, I read the International Bulletin of Missionary Research this week. And they reckon in the last decade, okay, I'll be honest, it was from the year 2000 to 2010, so it's a little bit out of date. They reckon that there were 270 Christian martyrs. 270, let's imagine it. Maybe there's 200 chairs out. So it's all, every single chair filled, plus a few standing at the back. That would be a good Sunday for us. Very good Sunday. 270 Christian martyrs every 24 hours around the world. They reckon that between the year 2000 and 2010, one million Christians were martyred for their faith. That's sacrifice. So if I think about the king in the story, I've got this word, idol. If I think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I think of the word sacrifice. So let me just roll back and say, what about you and what about me? How do we fit in a story like this? Well, if I was really honest, I would love to think I'm Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'd love to think I love God more than life. But if I'm really honest, living in London today, I wonder if I'm similar to King Nebuchadnezzar. John Calvin, he was a French pastor and theologian, says the mind is a factory of idols. The mind is a factory of idols. Paul Tillich, he was a German philosopher and theologian, said your ultimate concern is what you most often think about. He defined that as an idol. Bill Bright, an American evangelist, says an idol is whatever is on the throne of your life. We can end up thinking, idols, they don't apply in London, do they? I mean, after all, this was a king two and a half thousand years ago. What's that got to do with us? Nancy Piercy, she's an American author, says an idol is anything we want more than God. Anything we rely on more than God. Anything we look to for greater fulfillment than God. Idolatry is thus the hidden sin driving all others. I think, oh God, how do I make this as honest as I really can? Well, I guess if we're honest, there's an idol of pleasure. How much alcohol can I consume? How much food can I eat? What drugs could I take? What sex? How often? That's pleasure. Oh, yeah, actually, we probably have got that in London. It's not necessarily something tall that we expect everyone to bow down before, but actually maybe that does shape us. Maybe it's not pleasure, maybe it's power. How can I be in control? 
If it's not control, how do I get revenge on somebody else? Because that reflects my demonstration of power. Maybe if it's not power for you, it's relationships. Is my wife my everything? Is my husband? If I didn't have them, would that be? Would, if I never get married, does, does that mean? Is this this idol I really think about? Is it your child? We live in this child-centered world. And God, as long as the kid, I'll do anything for my kids. Is it knowledge? And, and I'm showing my age. When I did a degree, five people, five percent, sorry, of the population did a degree. Now I understand five percent of our population get a PhD. We're surely a, a nation that's wrapped up in knowledge. I'm sure there's many in this church that have already got masters. And I'm surprised you're listening to me. I was special needs at school. We live on this thing. If I had a bit more knowledge, if I could read another article, if I could get the more up-to-date news, if I could get a better sermon out on a Sunday, or is it possessions? I thought, surely nobody in London thinks it's possessions, do they? I went to Ealing Comedy on Wednesday night. Dara O'Brien was the headline act. He was driving out as I left in his Maserati. I think, wow, nice car. <sighs> Golly, you know, here I am literally trying not to sort of run behind think I could just touch the car. Why does he do that? I guess because people like me go, wow. It's not just about the possessions that we have. A.W. Tozer, he was an American pastor, preacher, and author, says an idol of the mind is as offensive to God as an idol of the hand. And so it's not just about what we own. Behind every idol is self. How are we handling this passage? Well, I feel I'm going to come to land very quickly. So I then want to say, how does it point to Jesus? How do I discover something of Jesus? How do I bring something of hope out of a chapter like this? I guess as the king set up an image there for us to worship, the father sent his son to die on a cross outside Jerusalem. It's quite a different image really, isn't it? But I guess it was actually him saying, look, this is my son. I'd love you to worship him. I guess sometimes I see a mirror image of the three friends that resist the temptation to bow down and worship for convenience. It makes me think of Jesus when he was tempted in the wilderness. Satan says, bow down and worship me, but Jesus said, no, I won't do that. And I guess you can see something of Scripture reflected there. But I guess if I'm really honest, I think... The three men lived a life of obedience. But Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience. Even when we cannot be faithful, he was faithful so that we could be forgiven. And I think Jesus is even greater than three men that were here. But I guess for me, when I look at this, I think these three men were spared death. But Jesus didn't. The plan of God for him was that he would suffer and die 
for our sins so that we could be forgiven. He actually died in our place. Paul, writing to the church in Philippi, says this, in your relations with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus wasn't spared death. He went through death. He rose again, that we could therefore be offered life. So I guess my challenge is we have a king who built an idol. Many of us can be like that. If we're really honest, we've got idols in our own hearts. We may have them in our hands. We've probably got them in our hearts. Oh, how many likes could I get on Instagram so then I feel acceptable? If I've got 100 people to like my Facebook post, would that make me feel better about myself? What kind of idol am I building? And yet the challenge is, are we prepared to make a sacrifice? I guess coming out of this story as well is, what about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They loved the Father more than they loved life. That's a real provocating standard to me. I think, oh God. I could could say that, but God sees into my heart. I think, can I live that? And then ultimately I believe that this is all tied up in what Jesus did for us. I'm not trying to beat us up and say, oh, well, actually, if you don't make the perfect sacrifice, you won't be good enough, because we know that Jesus made the sacrifice for us. But what is in our heart? I'd like to take a moment of silence, and then I'm going to encourage us to respond. I know the band will come back, and we will have a song. I'd like you just to listen to the Holy Spirit and say, What idols do you need to repent of? Might be an example. It may be something now comes to your mind straight away. You think, hmm, what do I think about? What's on the throne of my life? Where do I go when I daydream? I'm not saying any of these things are bad. We just know if they've become idols. Having enough money in the bank making sure my career is going well enough, getting revenge, being popular on social media. What is the idol that we've set up that ultimately we want to serve us? The next thing I'd just like to challenge us in application is what do we need to sacrifice for him? Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego were prepared to sacrifice security, family, even life 
why don't you just allow God in his grace to speak to you now and say, actually, you know what? I think you just held on that too tight, too long. You hold your, whole, your own reputation too hard. I want you to tell your friends about me and you won't open your mouth. I'd like you to pray for your sick neighbor and you won't because your reputation is more important than me. If you feel that you've got an idol to repent of or a sacrifice that you need to make, I'm just going to encourage you to kneel where you are. There's something good about doing the physical thing that expresses our heart. I'm not going to ask you any questions. I'm just going to encourage you to kneel before him. And I know that Yvette is just going to lead us in this song. If you feel you'd like to respond, why don't you kneel right now?